Good morning, church. Let's seek the Lord together in prayer now. Lord, we just sang our prayer to you. Show us Christ. Oh God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. We thank you that you've designed it such that once a week we would come together and that we would sit under the preaching of your word, that we would feast our souls on your word, that you would nourish your people in a special way. So, Lord, reveal your glory. Show us Christ. We thank you, Lord, that there's nothing more that you would love to do than show us more of your Son. So do that in our midst this morning. Work mightily through your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would help me as I seek to preach your word, Lord. I know that apart from you, Lord Jesus, I can do nothing. And so I pray that you'd help me to abide in you and commune with you even as I preach, and that it would be evident where the help comes from. And Lord, that you would help each of these brothers and sisters commune with you and seek you in prayer, even as they are hearing and receiving this this word, this food for their souls. I pray, God, that as we begin this Advent season, that our desire for your coming would only intensify. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we are seeking to prepare a sermon like this, or even someone maybe writing a book, um... One of the things that you have to kind of decide how you want to come at it is do you either want, you want to, do you want to tell then show or do you want to show then tell? It's one of the things you kind of wrestle with as a preacher. You know, do you want to just tell people right away, you know, what you're wanting to see and then show them or do you want to show them up front and tell them like how, how do you want to go about it? And in John's gospel, he just kind of puts the biggest things on the table right away. He kind of tells them what they need to know right away, and then shows them more of the depths throughout the rest of the passage. So there's not much suspense in one sense with John because he's saying some of the most significant things right away. We, in the early verses of the Gospel of John, meet the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We meet the Word And we're meant to wonder at the word. John is saying the most ultimate things about Jesus right out of the gates. John is saying these massive things in one sense so that every story that we read in John from going forward, we read with our jaws on the floor. Because we're meant to see something about Christ in these early passages of the gospel that are meant to shape our reading of all the rest of the book. So he just puts it straight up there. This is who Jesus is, and this is some of the most massive things you could say about Jesus. And so it seems fitting and kind of robust this Advent season for us just to think such lofty thoughts about Christ together. So when we pray, show us Christ. Well, may he do it, and may he do it through some of the most stunning verses about the magnificence of Christ that there are in all the scriptures and uh, this book, these early verses really, really fit well with the purpose of this book. And it's always nice when you're reading a book of the Bible and it just tells you the purpose that it's written for, right? So if you were to turn later on in the book of John to John chapter 20, look at verse 30, 31, it says that these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So in one sense, you could say this is a massive help for the unbeliever to be able to see Christ and be saved. 
but it's also a massive help for the believer who struggles with unbelief, which is all of us, right? So in other words, this word about Christ in these first 18 verses that we're going to be looking at um, over these next few weeks of Advent, they are meant to show us more of Christ. So whether you're an unbeliever that hasn't come to his true saving knowledge of Christ, this is a gift to you to see Christ in this way. And if you're a believer who's struggling with unbelief, this is a huge gift to you. It's a gift of grace this Advent season. And so may God strengthen our faith this Advent season as we consider the bigness of our Savior. May God grow, this is one of my prayers, that God would grow our sense of awe of who Christ is. In one sense, that our jaw would be on the floor this Advent season as we think about and contemplate our Savior. Now, when John wanted to describe the magnificence of Christ, out of all the things that could be said, he reached for a short phrase, the word. The word. When he sought to describe the most ultimate things about Jesus, he used this phrase, the word. The word. John's experience with Jesus left his jaw on the floor. And that's why he writes the way that he wrote, carried along by the Holy Spirit. His jaw on the floor was, his jaw was on the floor his entire life. So he says in another one of his books, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim it to you, proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John uses this word, the word of life, the word. Now, in a lot of ways, the more I've meditated on this has been one of the hardest sermons I've prepped before. Because this idea, in one sense, it feels so philosophical to talk about the word like this. But the more that I've wrestled with it, the more I've actually felt a simplicity to it. And so I'm just going to tell you straight up what I think this phrase means uh, because I don't want our heads just to be in the clouds with it because I actually think that it's, it's meant to be, actually in a profound way, it's meant to be concrete to us. The basic idea behind Jesus being the word is that Jesus has made the Father known. He's made the Father known. That's what it means for him to be the word in Verse 18, the last verse of the section we're going to be looking at over Advent, um, John 1, 18, it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him, the Father, known. He has made him known. This is what this is about. Or take John 14, 7. When, uh, uh, so John 14, 7, Jesus says this, If you had known me, you would have known my Father. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Like, in other words, if you know me and have seen me, you know him and have seen him. Because I and the Father are one. So the point is that of Jesus being the word is that he's made the Father known. Jesus came, or John came, to see that in Jesus, God has said everything that he wants to say. Or a really simple way to put it is, Jesus is God's message to the world. Jesus is God's word to us. 
Jesus makes the Father known, and this is really important, by what he says and by what he does. So Jesus' teaching and Jesus' living are now kind of fused together in order to communicate sufficiently what God wants us to know in this world. Jesus is the message of God. The message is beautiful. The message is powerful. The message is clear. The message is profoundly personal. Because we're going to see this passage building up to, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God has spoken through his son. And you've heard the phrase, actions speak louder than words, right? Well, there's a sense in which God is speaking through both the words and the actions of the Lord Jesus. So both of them are extremely important. So Jesus' words make sense of his actions, right? They interpret his actions for us, but his actions give profound weight to his words. But it's through his actions and his words, his teaching and his living, that God communicates his message to this world, to you and to me. Jesus is the word. So as we meditate on the word, God revealing himself through his son, I want us to think about the word the way the text does here. And so we're going to think about the word in relation to time. And then we're going to think about the word in relation to God. Then we're going to think about the word in relationship to us. Okay, In relation to time, in relation to God, and then in relation to us. Start with time. Let's think about this word in relation to time because it says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. The Bible teaches that before creation, God was. This is really a deep thought when we stop and think about it. And it's hard for us to grasp and describe it um, with a lot of clarity because everything else in the world has a cause and effect relationship, right? Well, where did this come from? Where did that come from? Where did it, and you just go, well, it came from this. Well, what about that? Well, it came from this. Well, what about that? And you just keep tracing it back, tracing it back, tracing it back, right? There's always a cause behind the effect, but then we get to God. Like, where did he come from? He just was, right? Because that's the point is there's an echo here to Genesis 1-1, right? John 1-1 is echoing Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, thank you for that echo. Um, in the beginning, God. He just was. Um, he just was. It, it implies his eternality. And... um so the Bible continues on by describing God as the eternal God. This is the God who is said to inhabit eternity. He's the one that's called the everlasting God. He's the one who's called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. These are all descriptions of God's eternality. Or take Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, Wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is our God. But just as Genesis 1-1 assumes that God the Father is eternal, John 1-1 assumes that Jesus, the Word, is eternal. That's what it means when it says, in the beginning was the Word. Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. Jesus existed before creation, not as a man, but as the eternal Son of God, the second person 
of the Trinity. So the Father's title, we actually see this also, it's interesting, just picking up on ways that the Bible refers to the Father and the ways that the Bible refers to the Son. Sometimes you see the exact same title that's used for the Father applied to the Son. So for example, when God the Father is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end, Jesus is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega. It says this in Revelation twenty two thirteen: I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is all the description of Christ. And um, we get windows into Jesus's eternality uh, in different ways. And this is a powerful one here in John 17, verse 5. Same book, same author, few chapters later. Seven, John 17, 5, it says, And now, Father, and Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer, we get a window into his eternal communion with the Father. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory of that I had with you before the world existed. <laughs> this is the Christ that we're saying, show us more of him. He's the eternal word. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world, before the world existed. This is a big deal, that this is the one who has always been. The eternal word took on human flesh. This is what Christmas is about. This is what we are contemplating. And this should increase our awe of Jesus. This is who we're talking about. The one that we think about in such familiar terms and some of the precious things that he did in his life and the ways he ministered, we're meant to read it through this lens. Hey, he never had a beginning. It's a really big deal that he came. Our instinct, isn't it our instinct to appreciate those who have been around the longest? I mean, it should be our instinct, right? Um, I, I still, I love having conversations with older folks that have had lives that have spanned many, um, many decades because you just get to talk with them. You know, you talk about an old, talk with an old war vet. You're like, you were there? You know, and you just get insights into it. You know, like you talk to someone that was alive during the, the Great Depression, you know, or World War II. And like all of a sudden, like that's like eyewitness, like you were really there. There's a certain sense of awe that just comes with you have been around for a while. It's a great way to just learn and grow in wisdom because there's just something about their perspective because they've seen, they've seen just so much. Um, so, so like you were there, like this is a good thing for a child conversation to have with a parent like you were there when that happened you were there like for little children like you were there 9-11 <laughs> yeah i was you know that's only one of the few things i can claim because <laughs> i'm not that old uh but the more years we have the more we just appreciate it or think about this think about how we feel about the sequoia trees like these massive trees that have just been around for so long People travel around the country just to go stand at the base of the trees to just try to put their arms around them, you know, or to drive their vehicle through the base of one of them. I mean, these are just massive, but it's, it's really staggering to stop and think that while these trees were growing, what, in Southern California? While they're growing in Southern California, entire civilizations were living, dying, rising and falling, rising and falling. But here these trees are just standing there as it were, just standing over time, it seemed. You know, 
we respect these trees because of how long they've been around. If we have this instinct, how much more, how much more should we feel toward the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God? Jesus was present. Think about this. Were you there? Think about, um, I was thinking about uh, God's conversation with Job. Remember God's conversation with Job? He kind of had to put Job in his place a little bit, or a lot of bit. So he's like, oh, uh, were you there when I laid the foundation of the world? I didn't think so. Uh, were you there when I filled up the storehouses with rain and snow and wind? I didn't think so. Like, and he just goes on and on and on and on. And pretty soon Joe goes, okay, I put my hand over my mouth. I did not know what I was talking about and I didn't know who I was talking to. Right? Like he did a whole new view of who God is. So we want to talk about Jesus Christ. We can ask him, well, were you there at creation? Yeah, it was daily the Father's delight at that time. We're going to see next week, Daniel's going to unpack for us verse 3, but uh, he created everything. Yeah, I was there. I was actually pretty instrumental <laughs> in the entire process, right? I mean, Jesus says, he was like, oh, the time of Abraham, that would be a really interesting time. What of Jesus? Yeah, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus was there in spirit when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, feeding them drink, quenching their thirst with the water from the rock, feeding them manna from heaven. He was there. This is our Jesus. Jesus was present. And so we should revere him. We should stand in awe of who the word is and what the word reveals. This should also deepen our sense of security in Jesus. Just because, you know, just like we're not standing in one of those sequoia trees thinking, it's just going to fall down today. You know, it's like, no, it's been there a long time. It's going to stand. We're, we're knowing Jesus is going to stand. We're confident that Jesus is going to stand. He's our source of eternal security. And the verse came to mind, one that I love, you might want to write down, Deuteronomy 33, 27. The eternal God is your dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. The eternal God is your dwelling place. The eternal word is your dwelling place. And underneath you are the everlasting arms. If he saw the things in the beginning, he's going to see two things all the way to the end. Jesus is the eternal word. So in relationship to time, the word is eternal. Jesus became a man, but he never became God. He has always been. So that's the word in relation to time. What about the word in relation to God, right? Our text says this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So let's take that first phrase. And the word was with God. And thinking about how the word relates to God. So this phrase kind of has a couple of senses to it. On the one hand, the phrase with God underlines eternality, the eternality of the word. So what we just talked about, right? If he was with God, you know, from the beginning, it shows that he must be eternal as well. Just as God the Father had no beginning, so it is with God the Son. The word Jesus Christ is co-eternal with the Father. If the word was with 
God in the beginning, that he too must be eternal. So that's the first sense. Pass over that quickly. But on the other hand, the phrase with God speaks of an intimate relationship. And this is just gives us one of many windows. This phrase, with God, it's meant to communicate intimacy. It's meant to communicate fellowship, relationship from eternity past. This is one of many windows that the Bible gives us. And I was thinking about even this phrase. This kind of struck me afresh. At Jesus' baptism, what does, Jesus, what does the Father say to the Son? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is before Jesus accomplished his mission. But he's pleased with them. To me, it just has like an echo of, yep, this is the one I've always been pleased with. This is the one I always have delighted in. Or think about, again, John 17, verse 24, right? Um, But think about it a little more deeply. I mentioned this a minute ago. Father, I desire... This is Jesus' high priestly prayer again. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is He was with God. Well, what was that with God like? It was a relationship of love between the Father and the Son. Now, this is, these are just really profound thoughts, but if we could just peer into eternity past, what would we see? I mean, we just get these little windows here that give us something of a sense of what it means that Jesus was with God, that the, the word was with God. He was relating to him. He was loved by him. And so I've tended to think about it this way. You, you imagine the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I know it's just hard to imagine this from eternity past. And there's just this splashing of relationship between them of eternal love and delight and joy and peace and all of this just kind of erupting, this fountain of love that just is eventually spills over intentionally into creation. God didn't need anything. It's out of that overflow of who he is that God creates. But as we're seeing this window, I can't help but just think of the, the energy of love between the members of the Godhead. And it, I know this is a silly illustration, but you have to bear with me. But I just picture this kind of holy dance between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, none of you, most of you would not admit this, but, you know, when you watch a TV show or some of you have gone to more of these like traditional old fans, old fashioned kind of like dances, like a square dance or something like that. Something that's just, there's a certain innocence to it, a certain beauty to it. And you could even be watching it on TV. And if you're honest, you're watching, you're going, I kind of want to be in that. (laughs) Like, I don't want to look stupid, but I kind of want to be in that. You know, like you want to be swept up into the joy of that moment, into the beauty, the purity of that moment, that holy dance. We get a little picture of the joy of God within God. And What's stunning to think is that God created and God has redeemed so that we get to partake of that. Not as a God, but as people that get to know and enjoy and and be with him. He's going to dwell with us in a new heavens and a new earth. So these windows are, are worth looking into and just contemplating. We 
The word came so that we could be folded into that dance. The word came so that we don't have to sit on the sideline and always be those that are just kind of looking in. But instead, those get swept up into it. Jesus came to grab your hand, take you out the sideline and say, let's dance. Like, enjoy, like get swallowed up, swept up into the joy that I've had with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity past. That's the best I can do. This is just, this is just deep. The eternal word was with God so that he came, so that he came so that he could, so maybe this way, the eternal, the eternal word was with God so that he could come and bring us to be with God. His relationship with the Father from eternity made possible our relationship with the Father for eternity going forward. This is the word and he was with God. But it doesn't stop there. When we talk about the word's relationship to God, we say, well, he was with God, so he's co-eternal and he's, and he's in this sweet relationship from all eternity past. But it says, and the word was God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word who was with God was himself God. In other words, the word is of the same nature as the Father. And here we're starting to talk about the Trinity, one of the most, the deepest doctrines that we can talk about. This is what Jesus means when he says in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. So to say that the word was with God and the word was God, we're saying we're one. We share the same nature. So when we're talking about the Trinity, we're talking about distinct persons. So Jesus is a distinct person from the Father and the Spirit, but all three are one in their essential nature or a classic expression of it. One God, three persons. One in essence, three in person. So they're a tri-unity. No, our minds are not quite big enough to grasp it. It is a little bit like trying to put our arms all the way around a sequoia. But here we try. And we get a little bit closer to seeing God. And this is, this is important to think about too when we think about this phrase that the word was God because there's always going to be false teaching, right? Until we're home to glory. And Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, they really love to mistranslate these early verses in John. And many of you understand and even know how they mistranslate, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. That's what they will say. They'll translate it that way. Now, they do conveniently mistranslate John 1, 1 as the word was a God. And there's all kinds of technical issues involved with their reading. Um, but it's important to say, like, you don't have to know Greek. Like, sometimes the Jehovah's Witness will try to, even though they don't know Greek, uh, they'll try to kind of bring you into the weeds of it and kind of like dizzy you before trying to make their points. But you don't even have to know Greek to be able to come to this conclusion that it's not a God, but the word was God from the context. The context kills their interpretation and their, their mistranslation of the text. For example, and I'm not going to go into great detail and steal thunder from Daniel's sermon next week. He'll knock that out of the park and, and we'll all just uh, relish in the fact that Jesus created everything. But that's the very next verse, right? In verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And so they want to argue that he was a God, that he's a created being. But I'm like, well, he made all things. So 
he created creatures. How can he be a created being? It just doesn't fit with any honesty in this context. And so I will tell you boldly this morning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God of the same nature with the Father and the Spirit. Can we perfectly describe everything? No, we're talking about some of the deepest things we possibly can, but we can understand that that he himself is God from this text. Now, let me say this. This is very worth saying in a sermon like this, and I've intentionally just taken two verses so I can go a little deeper on points that are really important for us to get in the Christian life. And and that's this. like We don't have to just hang on John 1.1 to be able to say that Jesus is divine, to say that Jesus is God. It's one place, but there are several places that are explicit talking about the divinity of Jesus. So I thought this is as good as time as any to give you a list of them. And so uh, you can come up to me after service if you want it, but I'm going to rattle them off kind of, you know, machine gun style here. And you're, you know, you're going to drink out of a fire hose a little bit, but um, I just wanted to wash over you. <laughs> Thank you, Philip. Sorry. Yeah, Philip's gone. Um, uh, <laughs> but just let it wash over you. Let this doctrine seep into your soul that the eternal word was with God. The eternal word is God. So John 1, 1. The word was God. Then you go down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Who's at the Father's side? God. Hmm. He, Jesus, has made him the Father known. Or, I love this one, John 20, verse 28, when Jesus is uh, showing Thomas, doubting Thomas, his hands and his sides, his wounds after his crucifixion. And Jesus is now resurrected. And he's saying, I won't believe unless I put my hands. Like, okay, Thomas, here you go. Right? Let's him put his hands aside. And this was Thomas's response. John 20, verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. That's awesome. Romans 9, verse 5 says to them, belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I love this one. Titus 2, verse 13, says the before it, it says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's Titus 2, verse 13. Or take Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. And you hear the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 45. It says this, But of the Son, he says, quote, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your, um, his scepter of... Up- um, his scepter of uprightness is a scepter of your kingdom. And then Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1, right out of the gates in Second Peter, it says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can I do one more? All right. First John chapter 5, verse 20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. 
So these texts, I think, are explicit and they're super strong and clear. But even then, this is not being exhaustive when it talks about the doctrine of the divinity of Christ. The evidence of the divinity of Christ could look at those texts, but you can also look at a lot of other texts where it's implied, which is powerful. And it's, if it's clearly implied, um, it should be taken to heart. For, I gave one example earlier of just, you know, the Father is referred to as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end. You apply the same title to Jesus. It's implying something about his divinity. Literally, when I think about the divinity of Christ, and just, just, just a pastoral point for you guys, I think one of the things that has helped me a lot on this is just being steeped in the scriptures, day in and day out, week in, week out, and I just see over and over again things that are said about the Father applied to the Son. And the Father doesn't share his glory with another. God, it says God doesn't share his glory with another unless he himself is of the same nature, right? And so we just see, I mean, I, I just can't even give an estimate. They're just literally everywhere. These descriptions of Jesus that really it cannot be said of anybody unless it is unless he himself is God. So um, I'm not going to go down the rabbit trail anymore, but think of another, like think about this text and how it implies it. John 10, verse 33. They're wanting, the, the religious leaders are wanting to kill Jesus. Right? Why? Why are they wanting to kill him? It's that they say it themselves because you're making yourself equal with God. If the shoe fits, you know, but that's why they wanted to kill him. It was very clear. Or think about this. What do, I was talking about this a little bit in the Sunday school class today. What happens um, when someone starts to try to worship an angel? What does the angel say? Don't do that. Stop doing that. I'm a fellow servant. I worship God too. <laughs> Let's not do this thing, right? Okay. After Jesus' resurrection, people fell down at the feet of Jesus and started worshiping him. What does he say? <sighs> You're catching on. You're getting it. Why? Because he's God. He's of the same nature with the Father. And so the evidence is very strong for the divinity of Jesus Christ. And... um why is it important, though? You might want to just stop back and say, like, well, why is it so important to believe that Jesus is divine, that he himself is God, that he's of one nature with the Father, that he's not just, uh, the, you know, the first created being or something like that? Well, I was really helped by just these simple descriptions that a brother named Eric Raymond put it this way. He says, the Redeemer had to be truly human in order to suffer and to sympathize. It's a simple way. He had to be truly human in order to suffer and to sympathize. The Redeemer had to be truly divine in order to satisfy and secure. So satisfy, only the divine Son of God could bear up under the wrath of the eternal God and the punishment they bring. Jesus alone could satisfy on the cross, bear up under the full weight of the wrath of the eternal righteous God. He had to be divine to do that, to satisfy the demands of the law, to satisfy the wrath, the righteous wrath of God. And he did in his body on the tree. And to secure, to secure a righteousness that we did not have in ourselves. That's why it's so important not just to emphasize that Jesus died and that he rose, but that he lived. He lived a perfect life. And that perfection secured a righteousness that we could not bring to the table ourselves. 
And that's why last week when I talked about that story of Achan, you know, when all of us have stuff under our tents, it was talked about the importance that Jesus came and he was willing to swap tents with us, to take the blame for what we've hidden in our tents and to allow us to move into his tent and to be treated like he had lived this perfectly pure life, right? And uh, so Jesus, the Redeemer, had to be truly divine in order to satisfy the wrath of God and to secure our righteousness that we did not have in ourselves. And through faith in him, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. We are truly secure. And through faith in him, the wrath of God does not fall on us, but he absorbed it in our place. So let me summarize this massive point. Okay, so in relationship to time, Jesus is the eternal word. In relation to God, Jesus has eternally enjoyed the Father and is of the same nature as the Father. Jesus is himself God. He's the eternal divine word. Now, let's come down the home stretch and say, okay, so we've talked about the word in relationship to time, the word in relationship to God, and now the word in relationship to us. So what is the word? The word is a way of referring to Jesus and all that he taught and all that he did together to reveal God to us. He is the message of God to the world. Everything that God wants to say could be summarized in a person. And Jesus, what he said and what he has done. And I want to ask you this. How would it be for us if God never gave this message to us? Like if he never told us the way that we are to go. In other words, we'd still be sitting in darkness. I was thinking about this the other day because I was having a conversation with one of my kids and um, just marveling at the gospel together and just thinking about how, like, the burden on our back when it comes to our sin. We were talking about the Pilgrim's Progress and that that burden that Christian carried on his back. And um, and this is a discipline moment, so we're just talking about confessing our sins, you know, and reconciling, and we're just talking about how amazing it is that we can actually just confess our sins to God and we can reconcile to one another and then the burden can be lifted and we can walk with God. But I asked a question like, what if, what if there was no way to take that burden away? We, and we both just felt in that moment, like what a miserable existence, you know? But you could say the same thing here and say, what if God had not spoken? What if God had not given his message to this world? we would be walking in darkness, groping around, trying to find something, but we would never find a way out. But the text here this morning is saying to us, God has spoken. And he has spoken in an ear-splitting way, like loud and clear and powerfully through his son. His son came teaching and people listened to his teaching and said, I have never heard anything like this before. Who is this man that speaks with so much authority? His words were filled with heavenly power. But then his life, everything he did in his life. I mean, remember when he was in the boat with his disciples, he was taking a nap and they were fretting almost to death. And they're waking him saying, 
You're going to leave us to perish here? Then he gets up and he speaks to the wind and the waves and they stop. And you remember what the disciples said? Who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. That's really our question this morning. Who is this word? He is the eternal word. He himself, he is the divine word and he is the message that we desperately need. And so this Advent season, what we are saying to one another is that our God has spoken. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God has spoken to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. When his teaching couldn't be clearer or louder, he lives the life that we've never seen any human being live. Then he dies the death that we've never seen any human being die like that. And then he rose from the dead, proving his identity, that he is indeed the son of God and, and he accomplished everything that he came to accomplish. And so when I said earlier that Jesus is the message of God to the world and what he said and what he did go together and it makes it loud. It makes it really loud. So it's one thing for him to say a bunch of things that we need to hear. But doesn't the fact that he was willing to live the life that he lived, die the death that he died, and the fact that he rose the way that he did, does that not add so much weight to his words? So when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. May we let that carry all the weight that it should carry because Jesus is the eternal word. Jesus is the divine word. And he is given for us to be able to navigate our way out of this darkness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for answering our prayer this morning. We prayed, show us Christ. Show us more of your son. God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. And Lord, we see your glory as it's reflected in the eternal word. The one who is with you and of the same nature with you. Lord, I thank you for the help to preach this word this morning. And I pray, God, that as we continue through this series, this Advent, that in a sense, our jaws would get wider and wider, that our jaws would be on the floor as we contemplate who Jesus is, what he's taught, what he's done. Lord, that we would live lives of awe. God, I pray for those of us in this room that have lost our awe. Oh God, would you restore it? Would you help us to see your son for who he truly is? And Lord, I pray for those who are not believers yet, that you would speak loudly through your eternal divine Son, the Word. I pray that they would hear your message this morning. That you give them grace to believe and be saved. Lord, I pray for my fellow brothers and sisters. Lord, you know, though we are saved, though we believe, we need great help with our unbelief that does plague us in this life.
We pray, God, that you would help us to remember this word, the word, and that it would strengthen us. Help us to feel so eternally secure in the eternal word. We thank you that we are in him, and underneath us are the everlasting arms. Pray for brothers and sisters this morning that feel like they they're gonna, they just fall constantly. I pray, Lord, that they would know that underneath them are the everlasting words of the eternal, the everlasting arms of the eternal word. And Lord, I pray that you'd banish doubt as to who you are, Lord Jesus. Help us to hate the false teachings about you being claimed as some first of created beings. Lord, I pray that we would reject such teaching and know that they're demonic. They're satanic ploys to get our eyes off of the eternal word who is with God and who himself is of the same nature with the Father. Even though, Lord, it's bigger than we can fully grasp, I thank you that your word is sufficient to teach us what we need to know. I pray that we would cling to these things because they're clear in your word, even if they are just mind-blowing in their scope. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have humble hearts that prepare room for the Lord Jesus. I pray that you would help us to move out a bunch of stuff in our hearts over this Advent and make ample room to commune with the eternal word, the divine word who has come to dwell with us and who lives in us by his spirit. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be humble because though you inhabit eternity, Lord, we know that you dwell close and near to those who walk humbly. So Lord, we pour contempt on our pride, the ways that we're thinking way too highly of ourselves, the way that we've thought so low of you, such low thoughts, unworthy thoughts of you. Forgive us, Lord. Renew our minds in your word this morning. And I pray that you take this word like a bunch of kindling, Lord, and that you would light the match by your spirit and that you'd set our hearts aflame with awe for your son as we worship him now in song. In Jesus' name, amen.